Well, good morning. I think I'm on here. Uh, can you guys hear me? All right, good. Well, for, if those, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Steve, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we are studying in the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is in the, the last quarter of the Bible, or last third of the Bible, um, in the New Testament. The New Testament starts with the books Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, and like Morgan said, if you don't have a Bible, um, please take one of our Bibles that are back there, at the, kind of by the front doors there, and, and you can have that. But uh, we are in John chapter 3, and going to be finishing up John chapter 3 this morning. You know, as, as we've been going through the study of the book of John, like John has, pre- has been presenting Jesus Christ to us as as one who kind of replaces all of the old and brings in the better new. He talked about how, how Jesus brings in the new wine of the celebration of God's kingdom. We saw that at the wedding feast of Cana. Um, after that, he, we saw that Jesus is the one that brings about the new temple and how he's building a people um, in which, and, and purifying worship so that we can worship God directly um, as he talked about like tearing down his body and being raised from the dead. He builds a new people. I think it was uh, last week we looked at what he told Nicodemus about the new birth, that, that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God comes upon you and, and gives you a new heart and a new spirit, and that there is this new birth that Jesus brings in. And, and all along, John, John, John has been presenting Jesus as the, the one who brings in the, the life that we always desire. In fact, John's words are about Jesus, that he is the life of men. You know, I kind of wonder what it would have been like to just um, to meet Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Because Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, uh, which is like his earthly kind of designation, you know, Nazareth was not any like major town. I think it was only a few hundred people when he lived there. Um, in fact, like, like we saw when, when uh, one of his disciples like kind of met Jesus, he's like, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You know, be like a beaver fan saying, can any good thing come out of Eugene, you know, like, or vice versa. I grew up in Corvallis, so, and I graduated from U of O, so I'm not sure what that makes me, but a a traitor, yeah, so, if you wonder what's wrong here at Creekside, never never mind, so, You know, I wonder what it would have been like to meet him because, you know, as what we see in the, in the, uh, what, and what we will see in the unfading, unfolding pages of this gospel is that, is that Jesus' followers, those that placed their faith in him and began to follow him, kind of were revealed to who he was a little bit along the way. And eventually, as they were revealed to, like, see, saw God's glory in him, um, and they placed their faith in him, their, their understanding of who he was and their commitment to him um, like grew deeper and deeper until it completely transformed their entire life. But not everybody started out that way. You know, you started off with these disciples kind of like not really knowing who Jesus was. He was just Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, right? But there was this gradual kind of like unveiling of his glory to, to those that followed him. And I think when, and if we're honest with ourselves, and, and for those of you that are Christians that know like the claims of Jesus Christ, that know what he's accomplished for us, that know the promises that await us um, by his word in the like, new heavens and the new earth, I think, I think you would agree with me in saying if we really saw Jesus for who he was and if we really understood him for who he was and who he claims to be, like it would change everything about us. It would change our whole life. And I think probably like those areas where you struggle 
Those areas where I struggle probably come from the reality that, like, I don't see Jesus for who he is, or I don't believe who he is, and I believe that, and I'm falling prey to some other belief, and I go down some other path, and it always ends up never delivering what it promises. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, and what we're going to see here is that John the Baptist, we're going to kind of see John the Baptist's last like major kind of appearance in this book, but John the Baptist um, and his ministry are going to be confronted with the reality that, like, like that Jesus is incomparable. And, and we're going to see like some of his disciples struggle with that idea, but um, what, what he's going to show to us is that if we really understand that who Jesus is and what he claims to be, and we really believe that, it should transform everything about us. You know, our text this morning in John chapter 3, starting at verse 22, is going to full, unfold into kind of three main sections. In verses 22 through 26, there's this competitive discussion that happens um, between some of his disciples and some other people. And then you're going to see John the Baptist's humble perspective. And then at the end of the text, you're going to see how Christ is completely incomparable. There is nothing to compare with Jesus. So please stand with me. I'm going to read that first section, verses 22 through 26, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get into our study together. This is God's word for his church. John chapter 3, verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. And John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and they were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. There arose, therefore, a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Let me just stop there and let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus Christ that, um, that you came in the flesh and you dwelt among us and you were full of grace and truth and you, um, you came to save us. And so, Father, I just ask that... Um, the greatness of what you've done in Jesus Christ, that we would just get a glimpse of it this morning and that we would get a glimpse that would cause us to believe and to be transformed by it. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we start off here, like these opening verses kind of like set up the tension in our story. You know, we're told that after Jesus spent some time in Jerusalem and in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, Jesus had gone up to Jerusalem for the Passover. At the end of chapter 2, he had cleansed the temple and like chased out all the money changers and all the people that were like turning it into a marketplace. And then he had this meeting with Nicodemus that we looked at last week. And then it says after this, he came into the land of Judea and was baptizing. And the land of Judea would have been the, the kind of region around Jerusalem. So Jesus doesn't go back to his hometown of, of Nazareth, I mean of Galilee, in Galilee at this point in time. But he's, he has a ministry with his disciples. And apparently people are coming to follow Jesus. And he's baptizing them. And, and we, we had looked at baptism a couple weeks ago that when, you, when you're baptized, it's, it's symbolic of like leaving one way of life, uh, the need for like purification and following a new like way of life. The Jews would do it when they would convert from Judaism, I mean, from whatever their religion to, to Judaism. John the Baptist was doing that as he was calling people to repentance and now Jesus is doing it. And that's why, you know, it's one of the reasons why it's a, it's a practice in the Christian church. The way you demonstrate your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've come to believe in him, is to be baptized. But Jesus is baptizing in verse 22. And then in verse 23, it says, And John was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and they were coming and being baptized. So John the Baptist is also baptizing, and he's in this place where there's much water. And let me just make a comment. Like, we had said that there was going to be baptisms in January. 
But believe it or not, here in Oregon, we couldn't find access to water. Um, like the pool where we usually go, like it was too short-staffed, and, and we couldn't, anyway, so we've got a, it kind of breaks my heart to have to do this, but we ordered like a baptismal thing, and, and so we can have much water here to be baptized. So if you do want to get baptized, as soon as that arrives, we're going to have a baptism, and we'd love to baptize you as well. It's a little side advertisement, but that's why we didn't do it in January, because the Yamhill River is too cold um, at this point in time, and dirty, right? But the problem is, and this is the tension in our text, it's not a problem, but the tension in our text is that you've got two people baptizing. You've got John the Baptist preaching a message and baptizing, and you've got Jesus preaching a message and baptizing, and you've got two baptizers going on. And what we find out in verse 24, there's this interesting comment, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. And what John's telling us is that, you know, in the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what, you, what we find out and what we learn from those is that John the Baptist's ministry came to a, a hard stop because John the Baptist had been calling out um, Herod because of his, like, immoral relationship with his brother's wife. And Herod didn't like it, had him thrown into prison, and then, long story short, as a way to please his, like, daughter, he had John the Baptist's head presented in this banquet as a party favor. So they beheaded John the Baptist. He, he had been thrown into prison, and then he was executed. And from a human standpoint, that's what ended John the Baptist's ministry. It's hard to keep ministering when you have no head. Um, in case you were curious about that. But what John's telling us here by dropping it in here, he's saying like, he knows all of that, right? He knows that John was thrown in prison. But John the Baptist's ministry didn't just come to an end because of the treachery of King Herod. There was another thing that was going, there was another story at play, and there was another king whose purposes were being at work, and it was like God himself, and what John's telling us is there's, he's not going to tell us that story, he's going to tell us another story, and I think a more important story of why John the Baptist's ministry declined and came to an end. What we find out then in verse 25 is that two of John, or at least a multiple of John the Baptist's disciples were having a discussion with a Jew about purification. You know, so this idea of purification, like we're not, we're not given the details about what the discussion was, but it's tied, it's logically tied back to the fact that there's these two baptizers. There's John baptizing and there's Jesus baptizing. And you'll see this in a minute that I think it's pretty safe to assume that the, that the discussion or that the Jew brought up was like, Hey, like whose baptism should I get? Like, which one's better? Is John's baptism better like, you know, this is a dude, like, seems like he's really devoted. He just eats bugs and lives out in the desert, right? Or is this new guy, this new rabbi, Jesus, is his baptism better? Should I have, like, John's baptism? Should I have Jesus' baptism? Do I need both? Do I need to get double dunked? You know, like, what's the story? And the disciples, like, didn't have a good answer. And so they came to, they came to John, and it says there, and they don't even ask a question. They complain. This is where I think you can tell, like, and probably the Jewish guy was goading them a little bit. Because you can tell this from their comment, like, oh, like, apparently most people think Jesus' baptism is better because everybody's going to Jesus, right? Because listen to what they say, verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing and all are, co- all are coming to him. You know, to paraphrase, like, they're saying, like, John, that, that dude that you baptized, who you endorsed when you baptized, now he's got his own baptism ministry going on, and now everybody is following him. Kind of that hyperbole of all the people following him probably gives us this clue that, like, this is kind of like a, a competitive and somewhat embittered statement, right? 
like, man, this thing that we had kind of exclusive monopoly on, now this newcomer, he's like taking all of the attention away from us and everybody is following him. You know, if you've ever been in ministry, like, man, it's so easy to get sucked into that, right? Like, or whatever it is. Like, think about the, I mean, like, like uh, that competitive, prideful, like, nature within us doesn't lurk very far below the surface, and it doesn't take very much for it to just come out like fangs blaring. You know what I'm thinking? Fangs bared, whatever. Guns blaring, I don't know. Blazing. Thank you. It's been a rough week for me. Um, it doesn't take much for it to come out of our hearts and to be seen. Like, you know, I think you guys know what I'm talking about. Like, you flip up an Instagram, one flick of your thumb, and you, uh, all of a sudden there's this discontent, competitiveness, and someone in bitterness, like, what? Right? Or somebody says something like this guy did, hey, who's is better? And I, just a little point of application, and I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but man, be careful of, of like, be careful of those things that like you like find your identity in. Be careful of all those things in life that, that this world would tell us, like, this is where your significance is going to be found. It's so easy, like in John's sake, like it would be easy. He had, he had people following him. He was like the latest and greatest thing. People were going clear out in the desert to see him, and now everybody was leaving him and going to Jesus. So easy to kind of get let that, like, our identity be found in the wrong things and for us to be just led astray. And, and quickly arises this pride and this competitiveness in our own heart where we just become discontent and embittered. You know, so beware. Beware of those people that, like this, like this guy that came to John's disciples that, that just want to play you against other people. Beware of those people that are always, like, promoting themselves and take, tearing down other people. Like, guard your own heart from those things that, like, tend to, like, fuel that part of you because none of that honors the Lord. In fact, none of that will even lead to life. In fact, you know, like, uh, John later on, when he wrote 1 John, describes that kind of part of us as the boastful pride of life. In 1 John chapter 2, he says this, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Like, you can live either in love with the things that this world promises or the things that the Father, like, gives. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Like, think about those three things. The lust of the uh, flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Apparently, John had the internet too, right? Like, the human nature doesn't really change much. We're fueled by those lusts that drive us to those things we see and to those those things that we desire and that boastful pride of life. The world is passing away and also has lust, but the one who does the will of the Lord abides forever. And what happened is the disciples were just getting sucked into that. They were getting sucked into that boastful pride of life and they realized like, oh man, like everybody's following Jesus. What about us? You know, fortunately, as we go into point two, John's humble perspective, John doesn't get sucked into that kind of discussion. As easy it is for us as humans to get sucked into that, like, John doesn't even, like, falter for a second. And I think it's probably indicative of, like, Jesus actually had said later on in the other Gospels. He says, there is, 
There is no man born among women that is as great as John. Like, Jesus' commendation of John was as high as you could get. And probably part of the reason why is because John had this deep humility that didn't get sucked into, like, living for himself. John doesn't take the bait, and so he responds. This is in verse, um, verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. So the first thing he does is he kind of he creates this proverb. It's not in the book of Proverbs, but it's, he, he makes a general statement about just the way life is. A person can receive nothing. I'm just going to use the word person there because it applies to you ladies too. A person can receive nothing unless it has been granted to him from heaven. So John's saying, you know, as, he, as he, he'll apply it to his own situation, if Jesus, if God's like leading everybody to follow Jesus, like that's what, that's God's gift to him. The ministry that I had was God's doing. John's saying that like when people follow me, and if God wants to diminish my ministry to elevate somebody else's, like what is that to me? Because every good thing that we have comes from God himself. It's this general statement. It's not just about ministry. What that means is for, for those of you that are sitting here this morning, like every good thing you have and every good thing somebody else has comes from God himself. And what is it to you if it's different than what you have? So John's saying, no man can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. He's acknowledging God's sovereignty and his, provi- his, his providence, this, the ministry successes that he had where God's good gift to him, the, the change in his ministry is God's situation for him. And I guess, you know, what about your situation? You have nothing good except that which has been given to you by God from heaven. And those people that you envy, same is true from them. Like, who's your beef really with? It's not with them. It's discontentment with what the Lord has given you. What is it to you if God chooses in his sovereignty and purpose to bless someone else differently than he blesses you? You know, but that boastful pride of life, that part within us just so easily raises up. It's really about your trusting God to give you what you need. We're not trusting God. John, John then took that proverb and he applies it to himself. He says this in then verse, um, verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. So after he, he, he makes this proverbial statement, then he begins to apply it to his situation. He says, he says, um, you yourselves bear me witness, because they remember when they came to him, they said, hey, this guy that you endorsed, everybody's now following him. He says, like, he said, that's the whole point of my ministry, John's saying. You yourselves bear me witness that I am not the Christ, but I have come before him. John knew that at the heart of his ministry was to point everyone to Jesus. And so that when Jesus came, people would be ready to meet him. And now that Jesus was on the scene, 
Like, why is John going to get upset when everybody begins to follow Jesus? In fact, we saw early on that after John endorsed Jesus, some of his disciples left and began to follow Jesus. We saw that in chapter 1 or 2, I guess. 1, I guess it was. John's whole existence and purpose was to point people to Jesus. And so he did that faithfully. So what is it to him if people start to follow Jesus? It shows that he's done what God called him to do. Even if his own personal status and personal ministry and even freedom and eventually his head that gets taken from him. He was faithful and completed his course in pointing people to Jesus. And then he uses this illustration. As a dad who's had two daughters married, I kind of relate to this. Verse 29, he talks about the bride and the bridegroom, and he says, But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. In the ancient world, like the, the friend of the bridegroom would be pretty similar to what we call like the best man, right? Like, and the best man's job in the ancient world wasn't just to like throw a bachelor party. The best man's job in the ancient world was he would kind of do the negotiations between the groom and the bride's family. He would facilitate all the communication. It was his job to plan the wedding. So the best man would plan the wedding for everybody. And, and what it's talking about here is like, this, the be, like the best man's purpose in life was to arrange the circumstances so that the bride and the groom could come together in marriage. That's what he was, that's his whole job. He says, and then when, the, when he hears the bridegroom's voice, he rejoices. And it, it's this idea of like, oh, when, the, when that day finally comes and when the marriage is finally like completed and when they go on like, like, like celebrate their love together, the bridegroom is like, yes, I did what I was supposed to do. The marriage has taken place. And, and John says, says that he rejoices he says that he rejoices greatly because of the bride and his groom's voice at the end of verse 29 and so this joy of mine has been made full what john's saying is like man there is nothing more than i that i want other than everybody that like was listening to me to now to follow jesus because i'm just the wedding planner and what i want to see is the bride and the groom come to meet you know, in the, both in the Old and New Testaments, that, that, that picture of the bride is a consistent, like, um, message. It's a consistent picture of, of, like, God's people. What John's saying is, like, man, my whole purpose is that God's people would come to know their Messiah. That God's people would come to know their Messiah. And when, when I see people coming to know him, when I see people coming to know him, I rejoice greatly and my joy has been made full you guys think about the picture of that like all of john's earthly things are on the decline his status his success his influence his freedom his head and yet he says my joy has been made full because my whole purpose was to arrange that God's people meet their Messiah. And that's what they're doing. You know, I think there's a ton of application here for us. You know, so often we live in the place of John's disciples being embittered and competitive, like trying to find life in things that this world says are going to complete us. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. And we're being consumed with comparing ourselves to how we compare with other people around us. 
you know, in ministry, super tempting, like, right, like to measure success, like, they call it the three B's to measure, like, success as a pastor. You guys know what they are? Buildings, like, if you, if you can, like, build a good building as a pastor, you're successful. Butts, if you can put people in the seats. <laughs> and bucks, right, if you get good offering. That has nothing to do with a faithful pastorate, right? Like, John the Baptist was faithful, and yet his ministry declined, his freedom declined, and his building got turned into a prison. You know, it's, it's so easy to get sucked into this competitive and comparative sort of life where we're always evaluating our, 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 our value as a person based on um, how we measure up with other people. You know, and it, it applies specifically in ministry. You know, I, I, whenever you meet pastors, there's always like, it's kind of like the standard question if you're a guy and you meet somebody else, like, what do you do, right? That's the first question you ask after you get their name. And if you're a pastor, the second question is, how many people go to your church, right? Like, it's true. And, you know, and I, I so I, I hate being asked what I do, and so I typically don't ask you what you guys do until, like, further into the conversation, unless I'm already outed as a pastor, and then I might ask it, you know, so. But, you know, but it, so it applies to me and those of us that are in vocational ministry. It applies to everybody, though, that serves the Lord. Do we have the deep humility that John have that we find our full joy in the purposes of Christ going forward? Or is our joy interrupted when we don't get the recognition or success or, like, outcomes that we think we deserve? John's... John's uh, conclusion here in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's like Jesus is so awesome that I want to make little of myself and much of him. You know, do we serve the Lord for the things we get from other people, for being recognized, for the successes that we think come, or do we, like, serve him because he's simply worthy to be served and we want to make little of ourselves and much of Jesus? He must increase, I must decrease. And John's deepest joy was found. And he tells us this, I mean, he, he reveals to us, I think, the secret to joy here. His joy has been made full because he sees Jesus getting glory. And if that was like the heartbeat of your life, whatever it takes, Lord, for you to get glory in my life, like, just go ahead and do that. I think we would probably like joy would be a lot quicker to find than when we try to get it through like the cheap substitutes of being better than the next guy. You know, I think the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism written in 1563 grasped something of John's like single-minded focus here because in the opening question of the Heidelberg Catechism, which was a tool used to train the church, there's this question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Here's the answer. Maybe. Yeah. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that what John's demonstrating here? He finds his deepest comfort in belonging to Jesus and being a part of his purposes, whatever that looks like, in life and in death. 
The, the, question, the answer goes on, and it says this. It says, He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. It's like I can trust the Lord in life and in death because I belong to him. It goes on. And by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What is your only hope in life and in death? that you belong to Jesus Christ. And he's given you a spirit to secure you and to empower you and to like cause you to live for his purposes. That's what John understood. That's why he didn't get sucked into the competitiveness of what was going on. That's why he, he, he in fact, in Acts, it talks about how John completed his course. Like he ran through the finish line. He didn't get derailed because he knew his only hope in life and in death was Jesus Christ and belonging to him. You know, but John just doesn't leave it there. John just doesn't leave it as he must increase and I must decrease and, and kind of give this, like, moral example of humility, that we should have humility um, and, and, like, make God our single line of focus. In fact, I think what this text is ultimately about, it's ultimately about the greatness of Jesus, and that's why the, he ends with this, these statements about how incomparable Christ is um, in verses 31 through 36. And so let me go ahead and read those. It says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he bears witness, and no man receives his witness. He who has received his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You know, he starts off in verse 31 comparing himself to Jesus is what he's ultimately doing. He says, he who comes from above is above all. We know from the the story of John so far that the one he's referring to as coming from above is Jesus himself because that's how the book opened in John 1. This is what it says in John 1, 1 to 5. I think I've got it on the screen. In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. What he's saying there is that that, that reference to the word is a reference to Jesus. We'll see that in a minute. He's the creator of all things. He preexisted all things. in him is life and the life is the light of men he says he who comes from above is above all John 1 14 and 15 talks about him coming from above and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory glory as of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth John testified about him and cried out saying this was he of whom I said he who comes after me has a higher rank than I for he existed before me John's humility comes from the fact that he knows that Jesus is the pre-existent one who has created all things like he's he's declaring to us that that no one can compare with Jesus because he is the creator, he is the word of God, he's the one that perfectly expresses who God is. 
And, that, and yet, even when he comes to the earth, the, like the darkness didn't comprehend it or overpower it, the people don't believe it. In fact, that's what he says here in John 3. Let's keep going. Well, he compares actually that, that picture of Jesus in verse 31 with himself first. He says, he who comes from above is above all. Jesus Christ reigns supreme. And he who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. There's three things he says there. First of all, those from the earth are of the earth. Like they're just made out of dirt. And they're from the earth and they speak from the earth. He's comparing himself to Jesus. Jesus is the supreme one who creates all things. I'm just dirt. And I speak from the dirt. My, my, my kind of like my, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm having a hard time with my words. My, my nature is limited. I'm of the earth. My perspective is limited. I'm from the earth. And my content is limited. I speak from the earth. Like John's saying, man, I've got a limited perspective here. I'm just a dude. He who comes from above is above all. He's probably telling his disciples, like, hey, if you really want like, to know something, you should probably follow that guy. Because I'm from the earth. He goes on and talks about Jesus' teaching. Um, at the last half of verse 31. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he bears witness, and no man receives his witness. What he's saying is that the one who comes from above, Jesus, has actually been in heaven. And he has come down from heaven, and he has seen God face to face. He knows God. In fact, he is God. And when he comes down here and speaks, he bears witness to what he actually knows. Not like me, John says, who is from the earth. Jesus is the one who is from above, and he speaks from above. He can speak authoritatively on, he can speak authoritatively on, on who God is. He can speak authoritatively on what it takes to, to like know him. He can speak authoritatively on where life comes from. He is the one who created all things. Like There is no one who compares with Jesus. And then it says, and yet no one receives him. Is that what it says? Where is that? Yeah, verse 32. And no man receives his witness. You know, it kind of reminds me of Plato's allegory of the cave. Any philosophers know about Plato and his allegory of the cave? Really? Wow, okay. So Plato's allegory of the cave. Uh, Plato existed, I don't know, a couple hundred years before Christ. He was a philosopher. Not Plato, like that stuff you make. (laughs) Plato. This is Creekside. Got to make sure I'm clear about these things. (laughs) Uh, so his allegory was this he, he, kind of, he's, he, he wanted people to picture like imagine three prisoners that were chained to a wall inside a cave and all that they could do was look forward at the, the wall facing them of the cave and behind them was built a fire so that it would give light to the cave and they spent their whole life in this cave and, and there would be these servants that would come behind them with like shadow figures, like a horse, like a cutout of a horse and like move it across the, in front of the fire so that it would project the shadow of the horse onto the wall and, and the shadow of trees on the wall and shadow of people on the wall and so they could see these shadows on the wall and since their entire experience was growing up inside this cave looking at the shadows, they began to believe, they grew up believing that the shadows were reality. That, oh, a horse, that's a horse, and that's a chicken, and that's a tree, and whatever. You guys tracking with me? And they're looking at the shadows, and they view it as reality. Well, one guy is able to escape his bonds, 
and they see him try to make his way out of the cave. And it's this painful thing as he gets more and more into the light because like his eyes, his entire life has been like accustomed to this cave. And they see the kind of anguish that it takes him to like exit the cave and come out into the light. But once his eyes adjust and he comes out into the light, like he sees horses for what they really are. And he sees like, he sees reality for what he really is. And then he goes back into the cave to try to convince his, his fellow cave dwellers that, hey, this isn't reality. Let me set you free so you can come into the light and experience reality. All that they saw was the pain that it took him to exit the cave. And so they don't want to leave the cave and because they believe the shadows are reality. It's kind of what John's saying here. Like Jesus came from above. He knows that all things are what they are. He is the light of this world. He's the life of men. And he came into the cave, into this world that's shrouded in darkness. And no one believes his witness. It's just too good to be true. It's just too good to be true. And he continues, verse 33. He who has received his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true. He's like, if you believe in this message of Jesus Christ, this, that, that tells you that all those things you put hope in are just shadows that are passing away, and instead you place your hope in Jesus Christ, who has, who has paid for the penalty of your sin, who has made it possible for you to like, have fellowship with God, who makes it possible for you to exit the cave and enter into his kingdom. When you believe Jesus' witness, you testify that God is true. And then he explains that. Look at what he says. For, verse 34, he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. Like, Jesus isn't just anybody, any teacher. He's not just any rabbi. He actually speaks the word of God because he's the one sent from God. He has come down from heaven from God, and he has the words of God. He is actually God himself. He is the word of God, is what John had said in, in chapter 1. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 18, it says this, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of Father, he has explained him. Jesus is the one that speaks the words of God. So when you believe the testimony of Jesus about what life is, you are testifying that God is true. There's a second reason. Verse 35, oh no, verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now, it's a little bit confusing to know who the he is that's giving and he, he it is that is receiving. But as you kind of like work it through in context, what, what John's saying is that Jesus speaks the words of God for he, God the Father, gives the Spirit to the Son without measure. If you remember at Jesus' baptism, the, the Holy Spirit came and dwelt upon him. In fact, Jesus claimed that the Spirit of God was upon him to proclaim good news to the poor and release of, to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. And, and it says that God gives the Spirit upon Jesus without measure. Like, what's that? Well, in the, in the pages of the Scripture, like the, anybody that serves whether you serve in a way that's like physical and serving or whether you serve speaking. If it's, if it's a spiritual ministry, it's empowered by the Spirit of God. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, it says, But to each one of us, 
grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. What that's saying is that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God comes upon you, God's grace takes a unique shape in your life and it's measured to you in a certain way. It's measured. So like the greatest teachers in the world, like the greatest Bible teachers in the world, they have a small measurement of God's empowerment that comes through the Spirit of God and His grace that reflects that too. If you serve, it's, and you serve with the strength that God supplies, it's because God has measured to you like His grace to, be, to demonstrate it to other people. And He gives some gifts in one area, He gives some gifts in another area. That's all up to Him. But here about Jesus, it says He gives the Spirit to Jesus without measure. Like, upon Jesus is the fullness of the Spirit of God. He, there's this like, complete working of the Trinity, the Father and the Son, the fullness of the Spirit. There is no limitations with Jesus. He's not limited because he's not from the earth. He's not limited because he only has a measure of the Spirit. He has the Spirit without measure. Like, God has just inundated him with it. So when you believe the testimony of Jesus, you testify that God is true. Because Jesus speaks the word of God perfectly because he has the spirit of God like infinitely. Jesus is the one who speaks without who, who speaks the words of God because he has the spirit of God without measure. Then in verse 35 we have this the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Like this, this whole thing that's going on that we're talking about in this text of Jesus coming to the earth, of Jesus receiving all things, of Jesus getting the Spirit so that he can proclaim, um, so that he can proclaim the good news of the gospel to us. It's because Jesus, lo- God the Father, loves the Son. This, this redemptive plan of God from all the ages is a plan at its very foundational level is a plan that's characterized by love. In fact, we've seen it twice in this chapter. Um, last week, John 3.16. Does anybody know John 3.16? Somebody say it real loud. All right. I, saw, I heard some whosoever's. I'm guessing those are King James folks. Um, <laughs> right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Like the picture of Christ like giving his life, being lifted up on a stake that we talked about last week so that he could bear the sins so that anyone would look to him. This God's redemptive plan of Christ coming and offering in our place for our sins is motivated out of love. God's love for you. And then it says, like, the Father has given all things into Jesus' hand. Christ's exaltation is motivated out of the Father's love for the Son. Like the whole plan of redemption from the crucifixion to the resurrection to the exaltation of Jesus Christ is an expression of God's love for the world and God's love for his son. And what he says there is that because it's this expression of God's love, he who believes in the son, verse 36, has eternal life. Right now today. If you believe in the Son, you believe his testimony, you believe what he's accomplished because of God's love for you and his death and his burial and his resurrection, you believe that he's the one that takes your, your sin upon himself so that you can be set free, you have life. 
and it's eternal life. Nobody's ever going to take it away. We saw that in from the Heidelberg Catechism. You, because of the Spirit of God that comes upon you in the new birth, like you are secured for that day. You have eternal life. But then for those, those that don't believe, it says, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I think the word obey there is talking about doing what Jesus says to do, right? Following in the example and believing what he says and doing what he says. And what Jesus says to do is what? Believe in me. Look to me as the one who's, who was lifted up so that you could be set free. You know, so if you're here, like there's two choices. We talked about this last week. There's no middle ground. There's two choices. You can either like bring yourself under God's plan of love from eternity past that involved the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his exaltation and begin to like follow him and learn from him and like learn more and more of his glory so that your life is more and more devoted to him. Choice A. Or you can choose not to believe Jesus, not to believe what he says, testify that God's a liar. And then it says what? God's wrath abides on you. Choices are love or wrath. Like, and those that don't place their faith in Jesus Christ, like, they continue to dwell in judgment. He loves, if, if, you, if you believe the Son, you're part of God's loving plan for the history of the world. If you don't, God's wrath abides on you. You don't want it to come up to close us, and it is scary. never had that said in my sermon. Usually it's like an amen or something, but scary, <laughs> scary is more appropriate, right? But like this picture, this picture of what God, like what God's doing is this picture of, of love, right? If like Jesus dwelt among us and he was full of God's glory, glory as from the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Like what you come to know when you come to know Jesus is God's grace and his love and his truth about who he is and about what this, what this world will, will uh, what he'll do with this world and what our purpose is. When you reject him or if you're just indifferent to him, you remain under the wrath of God because this world sits in darkness and people don't believe. It just seems too good to be true. So, you know, if, as we're singing these last songs, I just want to challenge you. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ and come to that place where you're just yielding to him and trusting in Christ's finished work and relying upon the, the, the righteousness of Jesus to satisfy the Father and not your own, and I just want to challenge you to do that now because God's plan for you is this plan of love from eternity past to eternity future. And if... And if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, like, then our lives will experience joy to the degree that we stop caring about ourselves so much and start caring about the purposes of God. He is the incomparable one who speaks God's word, who gives God's spirit, who, who accomplishes everything, and, and he's worthy of our full devotion. What is our only comfort in life and to death, right? How does it say, how does it read? Can you put that back up? Q&A. We are not our own, but we belong. For, there, there we are. 
that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for my, all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. Might as well reread re- re- the whole thing. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. You don't want to close this. I'll close this. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that that's really true um, for each of us here, that we know with all of our heart that your wounds have paid our ransom, that you have set us free, that you've given us your spirit, that you've showed us the path to life, and, and that we would just increasingly see your glory and increasingly follow after you. And so, Father, I just pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I just ask that you would reveal yourself to them right now, convict them of their need for you, and, and draw them in your grace and your mercy to the love that's available in Jesus Christ. And for each of us that does believe, Lord, I just ask that you would um, cause us to, to live fully devoted to you as you deserve. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.